0: You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Have you intentionally or unintentionally used casual racism in your day-to-day conversations with friends or colleagues? I'm willing to admit that I've done so in the past, before I realised exactly what it meant and how it harms people. We've seen celebrities cancelled or being forced to take responsibility for their comments, comedians defending their stand-up routines, brands changing their names because of it. Today, we take a look at whether casual racism has been a part of your life and how we make sure we check ourselves before we hurt anyone else. Just a heads up that this episode of The Quickie discusses casual racism using some examples. This may be offensive to some, so maybe skip this one if you need to. It feels kind of weird to say the phrase casual racism. Racism is anything but casual. But the way in which it's sometimes dressed up in humour, stereotypes wrapped up in a joke so that the person whose culture or race is the target can't possibly be offended by it, is how casual racism continues to thrive in Australia in 2021. It can also include things like copying speech behaviours or treating cultural differences as something to be mocked. It can include a gesture, like the pulling back of the eyelids or the use of a slang name, hence the reason Coon Cheese changed their brand. For those who aren't impacted by it, it can go by almost completely unnoticed. But for those who've been hearing the same jokes thousands of times, been stereotyped over and over again, had to politely laugh so as to not cause a scene, but deep down know this isn't right, it can be a daily nightmare. Emily Vernum is Mamma Mia's social media producer and co-host of The Undone podcast. She says she remembers when she first started to see racism dressed up as a joke.
1: I think it was around five or six when I was in school and whenever we would colour in with the Crayolas, I remember asking a boy in my class to pass me the skin colour crayon because that's what we called the beige coloured crayon and he would pass me the brown one and just laugh. And I was like, no, that's actually a really funny, good joke. Like, it's really hilarious. And I think that's when I experienced like casual racism in the sense where in my mind I was like, This is funny because everyone's laughing, so it should be funny, but I also feel really weird about it. And I think that's when it triggered for me, like, I don't understand, like, these feelings because I was obviously so young. Like, I don't understand these feelings of why am I hurt, but also why is it also funny? And it was only when I was around 16 or 17 that I became aware of racism in general and that it was also directed at me.
0: Melody Tay is the deputy editor at Mamma Mia and says for her it was more about comments that made her feel separate from her white friends.
2: My earliest memory that I was different was in primary school. This is super cliche but it's because of the food that I brought for lunch and I'm Asian-Australian so it's very typical Chinese food so it could be fried rice or stuff like that. And Back then in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was still seen as really different. I went to schools that were predominantly white. So the fact that I had a different lunch, other kids would either make fun of me or just be like, you know, what's that? And I remember feeling as a child just really different and begging my mom just to make me a ham sandwich because that's all I want. Like I didn't want to stick out. Just other things like bring something from your grandparents. You know, I didn't have grandparents that lived in Australia and it was just really hard for me to participate in those sorts of things, which, you know, I don't think they're intentionally racist or anything, but it just goes to show like when you're a child and you just want to fit in and belong, that these sorts of things can just make you feel really different. And that's something that I really didn't want to feel like back then when I was a 10 year old child.
0: For both M and Melody, casual racism has been a part of their lives here in Australia almost from when they can first remember, and it comes at them in different ways still.
1: Recently, as someone who's dating quite frequently, I'm not sure if this is casual racism, but it's definitely racial fetishisation where casually I get comments like, "Oh, I've never dated an Indian woman before, or like if I sleep with someone, they're like, Oh, I didn't expect that from you, like just kind of insinuating that my personality is kind of connected to the stereotype of submissive and conformative. And I think that's when I realized that, oh God, people are actually judging what they think I am as a person based on how I look. And it's little things like that. Like I had someone when I was around 17 talk about jobs and things like that. And they were just casually like, oh, M, your first job must have been at 7 And I'm like, that's so weird. Like firstly, not even funny. And secondly, it's really hurtful. And it's not like I go around saying to white people, oh, your first job must have been a beg's delight. Like, because it's not funny. It's not a funny joke. You're just saying it to be hurtful. And that's where it becomes casual racism because you think you can get away with it.
2: Yeah. I've experienced things like when people just yell out, go back to your country or, you know, get out of my country and all that sort of stuff. And that's just randoms. like you can just be going about your life and then just someone feels the need to yell that out at you. And it just really takes you out of it. Like you feel like you just don't belong in this country I remember once when I was in high school, I was rushing to go to my part-time job and I was just running up the escalators and there was this older couple blocking the escalators and I was like, excuse me, can I get past?" And I just remember so clearly the woman was like, we don't do that in this country. And I just remember feeling like I don't even know what to say to that and I just didn't say anything. Other things as well, like I think if you're an Asian woman in Australia, you experience a lot of dating fetishization. So lots of stereotypes about Asian women in the bed and all that sort of stuff. And it's just stuff that I feel like sometimes I just can't believe the audacity of some men just to say those stereotypes to your face, that they think it's okay, that they think it's funny and that they just have a laugh about it. And just sort of the assumption that they're like, everybody knows this, or if they're asking you if it's true, just because you're Asian. So I think that's something that's really common and I hear that a lot amongst my friends who are of an Asian background as well.
0: So how have these two young women tried to deal with it? For M, she says she sometimes confronts it head on. With people
1: younger who are my age, I'm like, no, this needs to stop now because we're the generation of change. Like, We have to be the ones to say no and stand up to these things. So there have been like people who I date who made comments like that And I'm like, that makes me really uncomfortable. And I make that decision right then and there to not see them again. And if there's like nothing lost, like why not? Like People should be held accountable for everything
0: they say. Melody though, feels like she isn't always in a position to do so. And even if she were, she shouldn't have to.
2: I haven't called it out. I feel like whenever it happens, I just feel really, really shocked that I just feel like I can't really say anything. And I also feel like I shouldn't have to. Why should I spend that emotional energy to explain why it's wrong or why it makes me feel bad? You know, I just don't feel like I can say much or like it would do much anyway.
0: Casual racism could be that joke you make about Asian restaurants serving dog or cat. It could be comparing a brown or black-skinned person to a monkey. Maybe you say all Asians are bad drivers or all Middle Eastern people are terrorists. These are all examples of casual racism. They are microaggressions that can include other things like asking someone where they're really from and being offended when they say Australia. Some comedians have had to learn the hard way when their version of comedy veers into racism. Like South African-born American talk show host Trevor Noah, who made this joke about Aboriginal women back in 2013.
1: All women of every race can be beautiful. And I know some of you are sitting there now going, oh, Trevor, yeah, but I've never seen a beautiful Aborigine. Yeah, but you know what you say? You say yet. That's what you say. Yet. Because you haven't seen all of them, right? And plus, it's not always about looks. Yeah. Maybe Aborigine women do special things. Yes. Maybe they'll just like jump on top of you and just be like, whoa, whoa, whoa.
0: He initially refused to back away from the joke, telling Triple J ahead of his tour in 2018 that some jokes just don't translate across borders. But he says he has stopped performing it since he was told by someone here in Australia that it was hurtful, thanking them for educating him. Dr Kathomi Gadwiri is a psychotherapist, a senior social work lecturer at Southern Cross University, and the founder of Healing Together, a multifunctional consulting and therapy service. Katomi, what are the most common experiences of racism that people talk to you about?
3: The most common are those racial microaggressions, brief and very subtle racial slights that communicate a pattern of put-downs or disrespect or negative attitudes towards racially minoritized groups. That's what seems to come through in my research as well, people talking about how those experiences follow them in the workplace, in their experiences with other people socially or outside of those social events as well.
0: Do you think Australia is worse with casual racism than other places around the world. There's a lot of discussion about how racist Australia is right now. Do you think that's true?
3: I think racism is embedded in the systems of literally every country I've lived or visited, including Kenya, actually, where I was born, where the majority of people are black, But I guess when we talk about racism, we have to talk about interpersonal racism and the systemic racism, which is what's embedded in the Australian fabric. So, the grip and perversiveness of colonialism is that for it to work, it really needs to change the core of a country. It really needs to change not only the existing values of a country but also a country's heart and soul. And the heart and soul that replies to this country's values is that some lives mattered more than others. Some people are made less human or more human by the virtue of their skin colour. And of course, you can engage in invasion or genocide or theft of a people's way of life without having to destroy something inside of you, too. You know, so I think at the heart of this conversation is systems that govern a country that fundamentally change what that country is. And I think in Australia, we struggle with that identity too because we have a very complicated history. But I think it's the same for most other countries that have a history of colonialism. So I don't think it's particularly helpful to rank countries in terms of who is better and who is worse with racism. I think what's more important is probably to ask, how committed is Australia in working around these problems? But I think What we are doing now, having conversations about this, is what is helping us to recognise what the problem is, how perverse the problem is, and what we can actually do to make it better for people who are mostly impacted by these issues.
0: In your role as a psychotherapist, what kind of impact do those microaggressions and those casual interactions where they come up against racism, how does that impact a person individually?
3: When you experience racism, essentially what you're hearing is that I do not matter to this person who is perpetrating this towards me. They do not see me as fully human or as an equal. And I think living through that experience day in, day out does something to your sense of dignity as a human being. I think a lot of people do feel powerless in the face of racism, Claire. It's so big. It's so deep. And it's so perverse that sometimes you just, the weight of it just feels so big to change or to shift. And what happens then is that a lot of people feel the burden of change is too much. So it's easier to assimilate, to just integrate and change what needs to be changed or what they are told needs to be changed so that they can be less targeted. And so you see a lot of people changing their ethnic names to be more Anglo-sounding, just to get interviews, just to get work, even just to get dates on uh, dating sites. It's quite interesting. And then you see people trying to strip aspects of themselves that attract racial targeting. We are talking about people going to surgeries to change the shapes of their nose or to change things that are quote-unquote too ethnic or too African or this. And, you know, there are other more visible ones that people straightening their hair or bleaching their skin or even changing their accents completely or stop teaching their children their mother tongue because all these things end up attracting some kind of racial targeting in one way or another. And they're all coping mechanisms of racial trauma.
0: I know you work with organisations to identify casual racism in the workplace and how to tackle that. How do we do that within a work structure when it's, say, involving a manager or bosses or a system, a way a company runs?
3: One of the things that I encourage organisations to do is just believe people. Let's just start there. I think it's very difficult for black people and people of colour to actually report racism because our default is that we will be gaslighted about it or we will be told, quote-unquote, we make everything about race or don't take it too seriously, it was only a joke. And so there's been a history of being gaslighted when we are trying to say, no, actually, it's not a joke. It actually is harmful to me and it didn't make me feel good. So organisations can start to really have policies around not just the broader concept of discrimination, but to have policies around ratio and cultural safety. The other thing that I tell managers, particularly HR people who are likely to receive this, is to start moving away from the concept of cultural competency, which I know a lot of organisations use, and to start adopting the concept of cultural humility. And the reason why I advocate for this is it is literally not possible to be competent in someone else's culture. When you think about it, attending an afternoon workshop about cultural competency does not even start to unpack or to touch on the complexities of some of the things that we've mentioned in this conversation. Whereas when we adopt the framework of cultural humility, we are saying, tell me what's important to you. We can really locate ourselves as students of other people's experiences and to support them to tell us what is going to be safe for them and what is going to enhance their sense of being included and being accepted in the workplace.
0: Well, then how do I, as an individual, become a better ally when I do see this happening in front of me? So just as an example, I witnessed some casual racism from somebody that I know who talked about a certain culture's cuisine and laughed about it. And I said to them, guys, that's racist. And they were like, no, it's not. It's a joke. But I wasn't the target of that. So I can't let them know that I was hurt by it, but that I was offended by them saying that. So how do I be a better ally in a situation like that?
3: I think what you just did. Sometimes the biggest part is just having the courage to just say, That's really not appropriate because just saying things like those could potentially mean this conflict. You know, you might lose your friendships, you might lose your relationships. There's a lot to lose sometimes even in having that conversation. So I think the first thing to do is to raise awareness because this is the thing about casual racism. It has no malicious intent. But again, that doesn't mean that it doesn't harm or it's not offensive. The other thing which I think tends to be the hardest is just to listen. Adopting a curious mindset rather than a shaming mindset tends to bring up more results and foster more discourse and discussions. So tell me more about why you think that is offensive. Oh, I didn't know about that, you know. And some of the times we don't even have to agree with something to change our behaviours because some things we'll never get to understand in an embodied way while they're offensive or harmful to others. But we can still accept that that is the experience of other people.
0: A lot of the time when someone using casual racism is called out for their behaviour their response is it's only a joke don't be so sensitive. Emily and Melody say that defence simply doesn't fly anymore. Whenever someone's like, oh,
1: it's just a joke, I always go, well, then say something funny. I didn't laugh. Did you laugh? And then that's when they're like, "Oh, that actually wasn't really funny because most of the time it's not funny.
2: I would just say that it's really not up to you to determine if it's a joke or if it hurts other people's feelings, that you should really listen to someone if they're saying that it hurts them and to understand why and also just to be empathetic to other people.
0: This episode of The Quickie was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. And if there's a new story you'd like us to look at in a bit more depth for you, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and Mamma Mia Podcasts on TikTok or shoot us an email, thequickie at mammamia.com.au.